All right, fellow fact checkers. Now, before we start the show, I want to remind you to head over and check out our great sponsor, Fox and Son Coffee. Uh, they've got an amazing deal with all kinds of blends going on. So head over there and check it out. You can get the Mexican honey prep, the Brazilian honey prep, the Guatemalan, the Ethiopian. They'll be adding new roasts regularly. So be sure to check in and see what new flavors Steve has got over at Fox and Son Coffee. They've also got all of your usual favorites. The Den Blend Dark, the Den Blend Light, and the one that we personally like around the house since... Uh, we can't seem to agree on which of the light or the dark is better for both me and the wife. The Den Blend Tube Electric Boogaloo, which is the medium roast. So be sure to use the checkout code FCT for fact check this at checkout, and that'll get you an 18% discount on any order of $25 or more. Also, any order of $37.99 or more gets you free shipping. Load up on all the greatest coffee on the market, and you can thank me later. Well, let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. All right, Fact Check This Podcast. And today, a little bit different of an article. I think this one's really cool, and it uh, it caught my attention. I don't know that it necessarily fits into anything that I've been talking about in particular of late, but it was a, a neat little article. So we're going to read through it and check it out and uh, see what you think. Maybe you, you'll find it equally interesting. Beyond the myth of rural America. Uh, this is from the New Yorker. Demanding that your friend pull the car over so you can examine an unusual architecture detail is not, I'm told, endearing. But some of us can't help ourselves. For the painter Grant Wood, it was an incongruous gothic window on an otherwise modest frame house in Eldon, Iowa, that required stopping. It looked as if a cottage were impersonating a cathedral. Wood tried to imagine who would fit into such a home. He recruited his sister and his dentist as models and costumed them in old-fashioned attire. The resulting American Gothic, as he titled the painting from 1930, is probably the most famous artwork ever produced in the United States. And uh, for reference, for those watching the video, the uh, the painting itself is here with also his dentist and his sister, the uh, the models. Very, very cool, in my opinion. Uh, the painting was also decidedly enigmatic. Was it biting satire, grim realism, proud patriotism? In the words of the late Thomas Hoving, a longtime director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the image served as a Rorschach test for the character of the nation. For Wood, however, the meaning was clear. Although he faced a storm of protest from Iowa farm wives, one threatened to smash my head, he recalled. He had painted American Gothic with sympathy. Cities dominated culture, he wrote, yet they were far less typically American than the rural places, whose power they usurped. In 1935, Wood, who was born on an Iowa farm 40 years earlier, published the manifesto, Revolt Against the City. In decrying urban dominance, Wood had a point. In the 1920 census, <clears throat> the 1920 census marked the first time that urbanites made up a majority of the nation's population, and, and city dwellers weren't humble about their ascendance. New magazines like H.L. Mink's The American Mercury, founded in 1924, and indeed this one, founded in 1925, The New Yorker, 
touted metropolitan virtues with more than a touch of snobbery. Main Street, Sinclair Lewis's best-selling novel from 1920, captured the tone. There was no dignity in small-town life. Its protagonist reflects only a savorless people gulping tasteless food and sitting afterward, cultless and thoughtless, in rocking chairs, prickly with inane decorations. At first, Wood had nodded along. He devoured Mink, adored uh, Minken, adored Main Street, and tried to stir up Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a bohemian art colony. He visited France and returned with a Parisian beard, a form of preening for which his Iowa neighbors had little patience. Yet his outlook changed, and so did his beard. The financial collapse of the 1929 of 1929 robbed the eastern capitals of finance and politics of their magic, he wrote. He also named Minkin and Main Street as part of the problem. It would be better, he thought, to take cues from the extraordinary independence of farmers and the sturdy homegrown cultures of the provinces. A bohemian no longer would shave his face and put on overalls. It was, in general, an overalls era. Many enduring images of rural America are from the 1930s. Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie, Dorothy Lange's classic photograph, Migrant Mother, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, Thornton Wilder's Our Town, and John Strybeck's The Grapes of Wrath. The run culminated in the Wizard of Oz film, in which Dorothy spurns an emerald city for a Kansas farm, declaring there's no place like home. All that was generations ago, yet the obsession with rural authenticity sounds all too familiar. In 2008, the Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin insisted that small towns were the real America, where hardworking, patriotic people lived. That sentiment has only gained political potency since. Underlying the country's red state, blue state polarization is a more profound and widening rural-urban split. Donald Trump's election was, Politico declared, the revenge of the rural voter. And if you look at this most recent election in 2023, the the handful of elections that were held uh, all over the place, what you can see when you look at the breakdown on how these states, how the voting went in these states, the urban-rural split is the true divide. Uh, it's not it's not so much you know red state blue state it, it's not it's not a lot of the things that um that get played up in the media when you look at the voting and the where specific voting is happening and how it's being done red state blue or uh rural and urban are where the divides are happening. And something that you're seeing demographically is a lot of people who don't agree with that urbanite mentality are very quickly starting to get the fuck out of cities and move to more rural areas. Um, The rural communities are growing quickly currently. People are... uh, You'll find land prices and house prices out out in the country where it has always traditionally been a lot cheaper and more affordable. Um, there are a number of 
there are a number of like cities like um, around Louisville. It's getting to where some of the counties outside of Louisville that are more rural, the land and house and property taxes are uh, land prices and house prices and property taxes are all significantly on the rise because people are flocking to get out of the city. And so it's starting to drive prices up in these areas that normally were a lot more affordable. People are trying, people who don't agree with this, the urbanite, uh, oh, what was it, the the wording at the beginning? Um, superiority are starting to flee from that because they see that it that that much like in in that those early days when that was all the rage but in actual practice not uh not the truth of the matter people see that that urban superiority doesn't actually exist it's it's all a it's all a farce it's all just uh people act like this is the the peak of civilization when in reality it's uh really the peak of of decadence uh, so people are starting to to run from that scholars who have spoken with those voters such as Catherine Kramer in the politics of resentment from 2016 and Robert Worth now uh, in the left behind in 2018 a report uh, report a sense of deep alienation rural people feel in terms much like those grant wood laid out in 1935 that their authentic independent way of life is under threat from an out-of-touch urban elite but is that picture accurate a piercing unsentimental new book the lies of the land chicago by the historian stephen Kahn, takes the long view wistful talk of real america aside Khan, who teaches at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, argues that the rural United States is, in fact, highly artificial. Its inhabitants are, much, are as much creatures of state power and industrial capitalism as their city-dwelling counterparts. But we rarely acknowledge this, Khan writes, because many of us, urban and rural, on the left and the right, don't quite want it to be true. The category rural spans a vast range, including small towns, reservations, timberlands, and ranches. One thing that unites such places, however, is that they're rarely thought of as particularly modern. In The Natural Order of Things, Adam Smith wrote in Wealth of Nations, agrarian life precedes urbanization. History starts with people working the land, and only after they succeed are cities possible. In this account, rural people are, like horseshoe crabs, Holdovers, living representatives of a distant past. Hence, the frequent judgment that life beyond cities is more rooted or less sympathetically backward. Events unfolded differently in the United States, though. There were long-standing rural communities that sought to pass their ways and lands down through history, but they faced a devastating invasion from across the Atlantic. There are still places where people have lived continuously for centuries, such as the millennium-old Acoma Pueblo in New Mexico. But the rural Americans with the deepest roots, the native ones, were very often violently dispossessed. The people who replaced them, meanwhile, were transplants and less sprung from the soil than laid like sod over indigenous lands. 
Settlers liked to imagine that their takeover was swift and natural, that Native Americans were already en route to extinction. This was a consoling myth. The process of uprooting one rural people and implanting another took time and heavy state intervention. By the official count, indigenous people fought 1,642 military engagements against the United States. The ensuing treaties, the historian Robert Lee calculates, cost the U.S. government billions of dollars. Settlers styled themselves as pioneers who had won their land with their bare hands. And this is how it went in Little House on the Prairie, with the frontier family facing or racing ahead of the law to seize Indian property. Little squatter on the Osage Diminished Reserve would have been a more accurate title, the literary scholar Francis W.K. has archly suggested. Yet in the end, land ownership came, directly or indirectly, from the state. The Homestead Act of 1862, along with its successors, uh, gritted up and gave away the area the size of Pakistan. And although homesteading sounds like a relic from a sepia-toned past, its most active period came, the historian Sarah Gregg has pointed out, in the 20th century. The final homesteader got his land in 1988. The irony is that after indigenous towns, it's the havens of the East Coast elite, such as Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, which have the deepest roots. Most bastions of real America are, by contrast, relatively new. Wasilla, Alaska, where Sarah Palin served as mayor, really is a small town in a farming area, but most of its farms were created by the New Deal campaign to relocate struggling farmers from the upper Midwest, hence Palin's you betcha accent, similar to the Minnesota ones in the film Fargo. Palin's proud patch of real America, in other words, was courtesy of Franklin D. Roosevelt. I'll get to my thoughts on this as as i finish it up i'm not gonna i'm not gonna interrupt it i'm gonna i'm gonna get through it the historically recent arrival of settlements like palin's wasilla or the american gothic town of eldon gives them a copy paste quality the striking outfits of grant wood's models weren't homespun he ordered them from sears and roebuck in chicago and the gothic window that had grabbed his attention, it wasn't the product of a distinctive cult local culture either. Eldon had existed for barely a decade when that window was installed. It, too, had been mail-ordered from Sears. Wherever the clothes were from, the image of a stalwart couple humbly working their own land came to represent rural America. Would describe the pair as tintypes from my own family album. And indeed, his parents had tilled a plot in Iowa. Yet that sort of farming marked only a brief moment in Wood's family history. His maternal grandparents were innkeepers, not farmers, and his paternal ones had been Virginia slaveholders. When Wood was 10, his family left the farm for the city of Cedar Rapids, where Wood set out to be a jeweler. The Woods weren't unusual. One of Stephen Kahn's great themes in the evanescence of those American Gothic-style farms. Although we tend to equate rural with farm, he writes, small general farms disappeared more than half a century ago, at least. <clears throat> Agriculture has become a capital-intensive, high-tech pursuit, belying the left-behind story of rural life. Fields, resembles, uh, fields resemble factories where automation reigns and more than two-thirds of the hired workforce is foreign-born. To call 1,500 acres of corn genetically modified to withstand harsh chemical pesticides and intended for a high-fructose corn syrup factory, a farm, is a bit like calling a highly automated GM factory a workshop, Con remarks. All right, I'm going to stop, because I'm going to get pissed off if I don't.
this is written by somebody that clearly has never spent a single second working on a farm or have any idea where the corn goes or have any idea how it's grown or have any idea what the fuck he's talking about at all. See, this is th this is where we're getting back to the disconnect between the uh, better than you are urbanite pieces of fucking shit and what actually happens in rural America. This this ridiculous disconnect that uh, all of this corn is just going to be high fructose corn syrup factories automated into a workshop and blah blah fucking blah see this is this is that this is that uh that air of superiority that they talked about before and this is why rural people so fucking hate these urbanite pieces of shit because this is what they think they have absolutely no fucking clue they've never done a single goddamn day of hard labor they'll never step foot on a farm and they'll never understand what it means to be a farmer they'll never understand what it means to break your fucking back 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week for three or four months straight just to get the crop out. They think that it's all automated, that it's all a bunch of fucking immigrants that are just working the fields, that it's not, you know, there's the whole thing is automated, that there's nobody, that farmers are just sitting back like big fucking uh, corporate, you know, CEOs raking in the dough while everybody else gets fucking killed. They will never understand what it means to be a rural American. And they don't deserve to because they are these holier than thou. We're better than you snooty pieces of fucking shit. And they deserve to die in their rat infested, diseased fucking cities. Back to the article. Corporate dominance is hidden in agriculture. Apple products are sold by high-profile publicly traded multinational, uh, multinational, but actual apples come from private companies that few people have ever heard of, like Geber's Farms or Zirkle Fruit. The government classifies most as family farms, but this doesn't mean they're diminutive. Family corporations is what Khan calls the agribusiness operations that maintain family ownership for legal reasons. In agricultural processing and retailing, the mom-and-pop pretense quickly drops. The country's largest food company is PepsiCo. It owns Rice-A-Roni, Sabra, Rolled Gold, Doritos, Gatorade, and Quaker Oats. You might think that this is how things work under capitalism, but U.S. agriculture is far from capitalistic. Since the Depression, the government has aggressively managed the farming economy, variously limiting supply, ginning up demand, and stabilizing prices. When it comes to agriculture, there is no such thing as the free market. The head of the fruit of the food processing and procuring conglomerate Archer Daniels Midland explained in 1995. Certainly, the overall effect of government policy was to favor large firms like his. See, this is missing the point again. 1995 is a much different world from 2005, from 2015, and now from 2023. Yes, this was true in the late 80s and up through the mid 90s. And then a lot of the big subsidy, um, there was the big burly buyout that happened in Kentucky where tobacco farmers had been majorly subsidized by the state and federal government for a long time. All of that ended like a lot of a lot of programs that existed back in that time, um, uh, you know, post dust bowl type thing. Uh, a lot of that stuff ended. And it it uh, stabilized those markets. Also, something that you saw around that time, late 
late nineties, early two thousands was uh, some of the hindrances were taken off of big trading firms and you saw big trading firms start to get involved in, um, in commodity trading, specifically in wheat, soybeans, uh, and corn, not some, not as much in, in, uh, cattle and livestock and stuff like that, but specifically in, in wheat and soybeans. Um, and so it created these very like fluctuating price points because, uh, the supply or the demand wasn't being driven by actual supply on the board of trade. And so like, the, and again, this is like, this is where the, you have the, the urbanite superiority coming in and they are fucking with the markets, not, not uh, farming conglomerates or anything like that. Like it's the fucking urbanites getting involved in things that they don't know anything about and shouldn't be in, shouldn't be part of. Uh, as sorry, as conglomerates grew, most farmers and farm workers were edged out. This is uh, objectively false. In the years since American Gothic, more than two thirds of the country's farms have disappeared, and tens of millions of people left for cities. Black farms were hit especially hard. In 1920, there were nearly a million of them. Now there aren't even 35,000. I wonder who's to blame for that. The civil rights movement and the government's uh, treatment of rural of rural black people to get them on welfare and not allow them to actually uh, make a living for themselves. Also, the statistic about more than two thirds of the country's farms have disappeared since American Gothic in the in the late twenties, uh, early thirties. There's not two thirds less farmland. The, you know, at that time, everybody farmed 20 acres. So everybody was a fucking farmer. Now there's as, as much farmland, but there is more consolidation. But it's not like everybody's running a 20,000 acre, you know, massive farm there are still a lot of farmers who farm you know a thousand two thousand five hundred acres and you know just have their family farms there there are still a ton of small farms and small farming communities and rural farming communities as many as there were back then there's just not as many farms because now instead of every tom dick and harry farming 10 acres and calling themselves a farmer it's more consolidated I, but these communities still exist, and there's still a bunch of people uh, in these communities who are not uh, Mexicans who are here on a work visa that work year-round on these farms. And this 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 urban superiority, fuck these motherfuckers, <laughs> just fuck them. Uh, like the New Yorker is proving that the New Yorker of 2023 is every bit the New Yorker that it was at its founding in 2025. Like, they're still the exact same pieces of fucking shit. The small farmers who stayed faced their own hardships. Performing at a live concert to benefit Ethiopian famine victims in 1985, Bob Dylan wondered if some of the money could be spared to support debt-ridden small farmers in his own country. It couldn't, but Willie Nelson and others started an annual benefit concert, Farm Aid, treating farmers as charity cases. 
farm aid started during a downturn called the farm crisis and is still going nearly 40 years later. Small farmers have been in crisis for so long, Khan observes, that the word crisis, which suggests a deviation from the norm, has lost its meaning. In truth, the ostensible norm, household farming, was a transitional phase, surprisingly brief in many places, between indigenous and industrial. Even in the heyday of pastoral mythmaking, when wood froze the farming couple in time as the essence of rural America, that image was badly outdated. The Elden House that Wood depicted, built in 1881, wasn't the ancestral home of sturdy agrarians. The first owner lost it because of overdue taxes. The next tried unsuccessfully to turn it into a candy and novelty store, and the property changed hands more times before Wood's 1930 visit. By then, Eldon's population decline had started. It had some 1,800 residents, and is uh, it is less than half of that now. The small farmer standing on his property with a pitchfork has been an endangered species for a century. Today, a leaf blower would be a better symbol for those who tend the land. As the economist Brad DeLong notes, the Bureau of Labor Statistics counts more landscapers and groundskeepers than people work on farms. If small, rugged farms have not filled the countryside, what has? This is Khan's second great theme. For the past century, rural spaces have been preferred destinations for military bases, discount retail chains, ex uh, extractive industries, manufacturing plants, and real estate developments. Consider Appalachia's legendary Southern Mountains. These are supposedly independent, isolated, and tradition-steeped hollows or hollers where moonshine was made. Hatfield and McCoy feuds once raged, and Dolly Parton's Tennessee Mountain Home still stands. The venture capitalist J.D. Vance's best-selling uh, 2016 memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, is another unavoidable reference. Vance was born and raised in urban Ohio, and he grounded his identity in the beloved holler in eastern Kentucky, where his grandparents had lived until they were teenagers. As Mamaw used to say, you can take the boy out of Kentucky, but you can't take Kentucky out of the boy. Con rolls his eyes at much of this because Con's a, an urbanite piece of shit. <clears throat> Sorry. The southern mountains aren't exactly isolated, he says. Rather, since the Civil War, they've been at the forefront of lumbering and coal mining. Corporations have felled the forest, fouled the land, and then, for the most part, left. Never mind the sentiment invocations of hollers and moonshine and kinfolk, Con writes. A lot of Appalachian coal country is post-industrial moonscape of slag heaps, eroded hillsides, toxic retention pools, and abandoned towns. Other features of the Southern Mountains reward a second look. The Bloody Hatfield and McCoy fight, which killed a dozen people between 1878 and 1890, is remembered as the eruption of an ancient honor culture. Yet the conflict in which some McCoys took, to the, took the Hatfield's side and vice versa is better understood as a logging rights dispute prompted by deforestation and the arrival of the railroad. The Prohibition-era moonshine stills similarly can be seen as a desperate strategy, manufacturing and trafficking of controlled substance by dispossessed people who had lost uh, sure means of getting by. If railroads allowed corporations to reach into Appalachia's haulers, cars and trucks let them go everywhere. They could shift operations to the countryside, towards cheap land with few neighbors. Relocating also let employees, uh, employers outrun unions. When work organized urban factories, firms open rural branches. This is the story of slaughterhouses. The perishability of meat used to mean that slaughterhouses had to be placed in population centers near consumers. That's why many cities have former meatpacking districts. Urban slaughterhouses were noxious environments, as Upton Sinclair's novel set, 
Urban Upton Sinclair's Chicago set novel, The Jungle, described the excruciating detail. Understandably, workers sought strong unions. After decades of trying, they prevailed in Chicago in 1943. Their victory was short-lived. Refrigerated trucking gave stockyard owners the flexibility to move wherever business conditions suited, which frequently meant anonymous horizontal structures in the countryside. Someone writing The Jungle Today, Khan speculates, would probably set it in Gainesville, Georgia, the self-described poultry capital of the world. Gainesville's immense chicken processing plants are heavily staffed by low-paid immigrants, non-unionized, and often undocumented. The story of how cities such as Chicago lost industrial jobs is well known. The story of how small towns gained them isn't. Still, the rural industrial boom that started in earnest in the 1960s was the historian Keith Orgel's rights, the defining economic process within the American heartland. In the latter part of the 20th century, faced an unrecoverable job loss in agriculture, small town leaders courted manufacturers with subsidies, obliging regulations, and a cheap, non-unionized workforce. Manufacturers, accepting this invitation, industrialized the rural landscape. Meanwhile, the Pentagon, also seeking cheap land, militarized it. The U.S. now contains more than 4,000 military bases with a combined acreage the size of Kentucky. Khan observes how this has fused rural people to the armed forces. By early 2007, nearly half the U.S. service members killed in Iraq had come from towns smaller than 25,000. A fifth were from towns smaller than 5,000. For Eldon, jobs came from meatpacking, based in a nearby coal mining town of Atumwa. The American Gothic house looked onto an area called Pole Trail, Pole Tail, where cattle were fed, herded with poles onto rail cars, and sent to the slaughter. Live by the meat hook, die by the meat hook. The financier, Eli Black, bought the Atumwa meat plant in the late 1960s, but uh, long before long, he merged it with United Fruit and started trimming costs with layoffs. Then Atuma's meat packers pushed back, and in 1973, Black shuttered the plant. Production was shifted to South Dakota, where he had found a more compliant labor culture. The blow hit Eldon and its environs hard. Trucking firms, utilities, local schools, and sports leagues all went bye-bye, one, uh, one employee recalled. As the region staggered, the American Gothic house fell into disrepair with its windows broken and its white paint fading to gray. By 1977, it had acquired a bullet hole in a bedroom wall. In the 80s, a family of four rented the house. The father had been a factory worker, but was now unemployed. A newspaper described him as a weed cutter. He and his wife had chosen the house because it was cheap on account of tourists sometimes nosing around. Even so, the couple's parents had to pay the rent. This is how it goes, Khan argues. With so few income sources available, rural people depend heavily on each heavily on each employer. The opening of a mine, a factory, or a military base might bring flush times, but their closure spells ruin. While cities are, by their diversity, hedged against economic fluctuations, small towns lie dangerously exposed. That's why they were so devastated by the trade liber liberalization of the 1990s, and particularly China's entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001. Jobs that had once left the city for the countryside moved abroad, causing a rural manufacturing collapse that rivals the urban one of the 1970s. Rural deindustrialization has received less notice, but it's been potentially more painful, Khan observes, given workers' lack of other options. Where metropolitan employment bounced back from the recession of 2007 and 8 in five years, 
rural employment still hasn't recovered. That's why that's why the 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 2016 Trump election was considered the the revenge of the uh what do they call it the the revenge of of rural America like it was people who not only have they seen jobs leave not only have they seen everything get worse they've been largely ignored they've been largely forgotten they've been played off like this fucking con dude as as less than as inferior as you know they deserve it it's and not only that but there are a lot of there are a lot of big changes that are happening in rural America because people are starting to flee the cities because, okay. Yeah. 2007, 2008, within five years, the metropolitan employment uh, bounced back from its from the recession, except that uh, the thing that also bounced back was taxes and massive inflation because a lot of these big cities were spending money hand over fist money that they don't have to try to push all of this back to to artificially inflate all of this and make it all kind of happen. And so now all of that's falling apart and people are starting to fucking flee because they can't afford to live in these big cities because they're so because the price of everything is so inflated because these jobs have all been just manufactured to create new jobs so people have work but they're all fucking useless and they don't pay anything. I yeah, there might not be any fucking jobs out in the rural part of the country, but you can usually find something, like something that'll get you by, because all you need is something that'll get you by out in the country, whereas in the city, you can have three jobs, and you're still not going to be able to pay your bills. So that's why there is such a, a massive outflow of people from the cities, and as those people flow out of the cities... Now things are starting to come back out in the rural parts of the country. And you're seeing this, you're seeing this flip again. And will it be a repeat of what had happened previously where uh where these big companies like leave the cities and get away from the the unionization and find workers and business rises and then they have incentives to go elsewhere and it all collapses? Maybe. But that's kind of the ebb and flow of of the workplace. And like the thing that they ignore is the damage that that does whenever those things are happening to those urban areas and how those go into decline during that state. But you know, never mind that. Th these urban hellholes are always like better than better than living rurally, according to Khan and any of these other cocksuckers. As jobs rush out, discount retail chains swoop in, notably Jollar General, which has more than four times as many stores in the U.S. as Walmart. Although its former chief executive, Cal Turner Jr., has written a book about Dollar General's small-town values, the corporation essentially preys on distressed rural communities. It pursues profits by minima minimizing staff and pay and shutting its stores whenever they stop making money. That's usually called good business, and I don't know that I've ever seen a rural or a Dollar General out in rural areas close if anything another one opens up because they are 
um, they are actually providing a service in the community that a lot of times like it's a it's a level of convenience that you don't get otherwise but shit i think there's like three of them within five miles of us yeah out here it's kind of fucking nuts uh you can find a dollar general half a mile from the american gothic house the store is now one of only two places in eldon to buy groceries but there is no guarantee it will stay we're kind of gypsies turner has bragged of his company we could close the store and be gone in 24 hours a laid-off veteran buying riceroni at Dollar General isn't our favorite image of rural America, but it's more accurate than the farmhouse tableau of American Gothic, and it's an image especially worth contemplating today as rural discontent increasingly drives politics. Rural discontent increasingly drives politics because the rural discontent comes from having to deal with reading stuff and hearing stuff and seeing stuff from these better-than-you elitist fucking urbanites if you just treated us like we were like human beings we wouldn't hate you so fucking much but you won't so fuck you die in your rat infested swamp hole although politics has always been an urban rural fissure in the last decade it has become a clean break democrats dominate in high density places not one of the 10 largest cities chose a Republican mayor in its most recent elections, and only two of the top 30 did. The Republicans, meanwhile, reign in low-density places, with notable exceptions of Native American reservations and the Black Belt in the South. And that Black Belt is starting to shift, and I cannot for the life of me figure out why Native Americans cling to their love of Democrats other than they must be fucking morons. I mean... They sold decent portions of land for pebbles and beads, so maybe. Um, like the, the Democrat has done nothing for Southern blacks or for Native Americans, but they keep holding on to hope that uh, more, more government solutions are going to bring them prosperity. The, the government has never raised anybody out of poverty. They've only only increased poverty on everybody who's ever been involved. So except for, I mean, except for those who are at the highest ranks. Like if you are relying on the government to raise you out of poverty, you are only going to be worse off. If you are one of the people who's running things in the government, you're you're going to do fine. So most of the uh the black belt in the South and the Native Americans on those reservations, they ain't ever going anywhere. Sorry folks. That sucks for you. Maybe you should change your voting practices be less fucking stupid uh it's now possible to interpret elections in geographical terms democrats win cities republican win rural areas and the main question is which way the suburbs will break although we normally think of suburbs as outgrowths of cities con notes that they sit on formerly rural land and are often filled with formerly rural people they're as much post-rural as suburban and their politics show it for city dwellers, this geographical line drawing is ominous. Rural people are a fifth of the population, yet punch well above their weight in elections. The constitutional allocation of two senators for every state gives low-density states outsized representation. This is why, in the past six senatorial elections, Democrats received 34 million more votes overall and yet had an outright majority of senators only once. Since a state has allocated two presidential electors for its two senators, the rural advantage skews presidential elections, too. 
In the past, six Democrats won their popular vote five times, but the presidency only three. Why Cities Lose, a clarifying book by the political scientist Jonathan A. Rodin, explains how similar mechanisms operating in district-based elections gives Republicans an edge in the House of Representatives and state legislatures. Still, it's not as if rural people who die younger and are far more likely to take their own lives are winning in a larger sense. The surprise hit song of the summer topping the billboard was Rich Men North of Richmond by Anthony uh, by Oliver Anthony, a one-time factory worker from the coal, former coal mining town of Farmville, Virginia. The song is a furious protest aimed at a distant elite. One might regard Anthony's anger, which includes a dig at welfare recipients, as misdirected, but half the households in Farmville make less than $37,000. Can anyone really say that his rage is baseless? In the past decade, rural voters have transformed the Republican Party, pushing aside elite-favored politicians like Jeb Bush in favor of ones like Trump. Although some of Trump's hobby horses, windmills, low-flush toilets, are idiosyncratic, his talk of disastrous trade deals and shuttered factories is not. Trump took real rural deindustrialization seriously and astonishingly, astonishingly turned the market-friendly GOP against globalization. The high-profile hillbilly J.D. Vance is now a Republican senator, senator of the MAGA persuasion. In 2020, Trump lost the national popular vote by four points, but won the Iowa County containing Eldon by 24. The revolt against the city of Grant Wood's day has become something like a war. Understanding it would require setting myths aside and grappling with what rich and powerful with what the rich and powerful have done to rural spaces and people. Such demystification, Khan rightly insists, is long overdue. Because when you look at American Gothic today, it isn't the architecture that catches your eye, it's the pitchfork, as well it should be. And it's people like Khan who continue to carry that air of superiority and think that rural people are stupid, backwards, you know, all of these, all of the stigma and the stereotypes of, of the rural farm types of rural America in general. It's why rural America hates the urbanites so much. And it's why it is becoming more like a war because it feels like they've spent the past hundred years trying to make us go extinct and it's time not necessarily to fight for the contrary but at least to fight for our existence to fight for our survival. And that's what you're seeing as the election cycle becomes more and more rural versus urban, uh, even suburban versus urban, because now what you're seeing is not only are a lot of these suburban areas, people who were formerly rural and got a little bit of a come up to do better. You're also seeing some of these suburban areas becoming the people who used to be urban getting away from that because they don't want anything to do with it um, the the pushback against the insane leftist progressive agenda of urban centers is going to be the tale of the next 10 years if not shorter than that 
but I think that's I think over the next ten years is when you're going to really see this dynamic push full steam ahead, and I'm here for it. The pitchfork is is what you should have your eye on because that's where the urbanites have pushed this rural versus urban uh, contention. They have tried to eradicate us and they will find that we are not so easily uh, done away with. That'll do it for today. Be sure to tune back in on Wednesday. Uh, I'm really excited about Wednesdays because I think it's going to kind of set the table for the live stream that will come on Friday where me and Mark Matz are going to talk about the Bronze Age mindset. So be sure to tune in on Wednesday for that one and then set your calendars for Friday evening uh, when I'm joined by my very good friend Mark Metz to talk about the Bronze Age mindset. And I will see you then. Later. Before you go, make sure you check out our great sponsor, Agorist Acres. Now, agoristacres.com, you can find over 100 varieties of seeds. They've got vegetables, flowers, all kinds of stuff. They've got heritage brands, everything that you want to start any kind of garden that you need. It's free shipping on any order of $20 or more. They've got cool packaging, and most of the seeds come in a fancy glass vial, no paper envelopes. They accept U.S. dollars and crypto and can easily take either at checkout. Now be sure to head over to agoristacres.com and anything that you get, use the promo code FCT at checkout for 10% off your order. I say all the time that you need to be starting your own garden, you need to be growing your own food, you need to be getting off the grid and becoming less dependent on grocery stores and stuff like that. Agorist Acres is a great first start. They have got everything you need for whatever kind of garden you want. Great people, great product highly recommend. So go check them out.